So, uh, welcome everyone. Thank you for your practice, very inspiring. You can hear me okay? Thank you, good. Just a few moments ago, I uh, turned and looked at uh, an altar in another part of my home office here and um, just giving thanks to the teachers. The first Rena Sirkar who um, introduced to me to Vipassana meditation and then her introducing her teacher to me, Tanku Lucero, Lindet Sierra, who's like my Dharma father. Pakoku Sierra. And then giving thanks to Tankulu Sierra's teacher, Mingum Sierra, who was also Mahasi Sierra's teacher. Mahasi uh, was a, a monk that taught from um, more of in, within the city in Rangoon, and of course outside of Rangoon. But then there was Tampu Lucero, who was a forest monk, and they had very similar teachings, and yet sometimes a little bit dif different. And but they but they both studied with Mingam Seto. Mingam Seto, um, who was born in the 1800s, was a Buddhist scholar, and. At a certain age, having really uh, understood theoretically the teachings of the Dharma, he had kind of an internal crisis and, and really wanted to understand whether was it really possible to understand the Dharma in a very direct way. He devoted a part of a journey to trying to find some monks or nuns, someone that actually knew from the inside, that, couldn't, that didn't necessarily repeat the Dharma in words but have an experience of it. And the story goes he ended up being led to this hermit monk that lived in this cave in Sagain that was known to be an arahant, a fully enlightened being. And Megam Seto asked him, where, where can I find these practices? And he replied, it's right here. It's what the Buddha's always taught us, these four foundations of mindfulness. And we're kind of the recipients of that uh, awakening that happened in Burma, then in Thailand, of this revolution of the Satipatthana in a very deep experiential way, mostly influenced with uh, Mahasi Sero and Achen Cha in Thailand and, and uh, Tungku Sero and, and many other Seros as well. Tungpa Lucero was a forest monk in the forest tradition, and that's who I spent a lot of time with. So I just want to just pay homage to my teachers, and you know, um, like the immense gratitude and gratefulness for for these blessings of these teachings. They it said that the gift of the Dharma excel, excels all other gifts, and the Dharma is good at the beginning, and the middle, and the end. And I'm just so grateful. The Buddha was very inspiring in what's known as the Kalama Sutta, the Sutta of, of Inquiry and Investigation, 
where he speaks about don't believe the teacher because the teacher says so, don't believe the by words or books, see for yourself with your own experience, which I just love that quality of one's own investigation, to see for yourself with your own experience. And then within that sutta, there's also this beautiful teaching called the criterion to know what is beneficial. And perhaps just like today, in those days as well, there was many different spiritual paths. And so someone asked the Buddha, what is the best path to follow? And the Buddha said, any path, which is very interesting that he said any path, didn't say my path, but any path that leads to the lessening of greed, the lessening of hatred, and the lessening of ignorance. And I think that is a beautiful teaching. Like That's a, like something that we can put our hand on the rudder to help navigate ourselves in our life. Is what we're doing, lessening greed, hatred, and ignorance, or increasing it. so grateful for this criterion, if you will, of uh, what is beneficial, this lessening of the path that's leading towards the lessening of greed and hatred and ignorance. The last few days, there's been Dharma talks on these um, <clears throat> 10 beautiful paramis. And these are the trainings of the Bodhisattva, one who is actually the trainings really for all of us in, in many ways to develop these beautiful qualities. But in particular with the Bodhisattva, one that has this inspiration to become a Buddha, these are trainings to be perfected from and within the Buddhist cosmology from lifetime to li lifetime. And it's very interesting to say that our most current Buddha that we know, Siddhartha Gautama, the origins of when he became a Buddha was actually taken from a Star Wars thing from long ago in a faraway galaxy, many eons ago. There was a person named Sumedho, not the monk Sumedho, but a regular householder named Sumedho. And when we speak about, just to come back a minute, about long times, Sometimes in the teachings they give like a definition of what is an eon, an eon of time. And an eon of time is like once every hundred years a bird flies over the tallest mountain in the world and brushes its wing against the peak of the mountain. And an eon is about the amount of time that will take it for that mountain to be ground down into a level plane. So you could say a long, long time ago. Well, a long, long time ago, there was this person named Sumedho. And he saw Dipankara, a former Buddha, walking, approaching. And Sumedho was so inspired and saw that there was a, it had rained not so long ago. And he um, decided to, I'm going to go lie on that puddle and let Dipankara Buddha walk over me because I, I want to support him to not get his feet wet. He was just filled with some type of inspiration like that. And after Dipankara could sense the faith in this Sumedho and did go over, and then when he went over, Dipankara went over him, Sumedho 
arose within him this inspiration, I want to become a Buddha like him as well, someday. And after Dipankara walked past him, he paused and he said, you will become a Buddha. Your name will be Siddhartha Gautama. And then this began what's known as uh, the trainings to become a Bodhisattva. These ten perfections that Kamala and Don were speaking about of generosity, virtue, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, loving kindness, equanimity, and these were practices that the Bodhisattva took on to perfect over 547 lifetimes. These are recorded in what's known as the Jataka Tales. And these are very beautiful teachings where sometimes the Bodhisattva was a bird, sometimes a lion, sometimes a snake, sometimes a human being, and all like all these different lies of learning about how to cultivate generosity, to live virtuously, this sense of renunciation, the cultivation of wisdom, and so forth. Some of these Jataka tales have been rendered into children's stories that are very wonderful to read. So you might want to take a look at those sometime, these Jataka tales, the 547 stories of the Bodhisattva on the journey to awakening. And I love that, and so may we never underestimate our intentions. My teacher, Tom Pulucero, used to, I don't know where he got this from within the Tipitaka or the commentaries, but I, I, I'm pretty sure he didn't make it up. But he, he, he told us kind of very interesting story of these three people and they were hanging out one day and they were talking and somehow the conversation led to aspirations and one of them said I want to become a Buddha and the other two laughed at this person and said oh that's going to take so many eons so many lifetimes I mean that's just that's crazy but evidently, this intention was very strong in this person, and one day, <clears throat> this person became a Buddha. And then, the person, that Buddha, began to look back of when was the day of this intention to become a Bodhisattva, to become a Buddha, and then he recalled, because you could see the, the, the past lives, uh, this conversation he had with the two other friends, and then he wondered, I wonder where my two other friends are now in this world of samsara, and one was a monkey swinging in the trees, and another one was a cow lying, being in the pasture, and not that being a cow or a monkey is wrong or bad, but the point of the story is maybe never underestimate the powers of our intentions to wake up, to make peace. And so here we are, we're on this journey to wake up. And there's a very beautiful quote from um, Carl Jung that says, Who looks outside dreams? And who looks inside awakens? And that's not necessarily the ways of the world. I'm very haunted with this reading from St. Augustine that was written in the year 399. 399 is a, a long time ago. And many things have changed since 399. And then again, some things have not. So St. Augustine writes that people may travel to wonder at the height of the mountains, 
wonder at the huge waves of the seas, wonder at the long courses of the rivers and the vast compass of the ocean, wondering at the motion of the stars and then walking right past themselves without ever wondering. That last line is very haunting to me, walking right past yourself without ever wondering. And I really want to just acknowledge all of us here that are not walking past ourselves, that are beginning to look inside. What is this life? There's a value of stopping, entering into the silence. The Chilean poet Pablo Neruda has this beautiful poem called Keeping Quiet. I won't read the whole thing now. But he speaks about what would it be like if the whole world could just stop for 12 seconds. And inside this poem there's a few lines that to me really speak to why we stop. He says, if we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps this huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, Perhaps this huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us when everything seems to be dead in winter and later proves to be alive. And so we've entered into this huge silence to begin to perhaps see more clearly the workings of our mind and heart. What is this life? I want to share part of the story of the Buddha's awakening and it's 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 been such a inspirational story for me personally. I, I relate to this story. Not that I was a, a prince like he was, but I relate to the story of the humanity and the humanness of this story. And so, yeah, we know that he was born as a prince and was destined to become a great king. Some fortune tellers, it was very common in those days to make predictions about... Um, a young infant in a royal family and so there was a few that were there and they'd look at the size of his arms and ears and different bodily signs and making predictions and four of them said he will become a great king but one of them whose name was Kodanya and he was actually in the group of five when the Buddha became the Buddha and taught the very first wheels, the turning of the wheels of the Dharma, the Dharma Chaka Bhavatana Sutta, it was Kodanya that awakened. Isn't that interesting? He was the one that gave the, the, the said, no, he's going to become a Buddha, not a king. And then he was part of the group of five ascetics that the Buddha gave uh, the turning of the wheel of the Dharma teachings to that was the first to awaken. He became known as Anatta Konyana. But this story of the father, the king, being very scared about his son going off, 
and living and so had a like this shelter type of life, palaces for each season, all the pleasures and education and sports, everything you could want. And so Siddhartha Gautama, growing up, lived a very sheltered life in a world of great pleasures. And it was only in his 29th year where there was some calling to go outside into the kingdom. He said that he went out four times, and each time he came across a messenger. The first messenger was the truth of aging. Siddhartha came across an old person and asked Jhana, his attendant, who are you? And Jhana, and, and Jhana said, this is a person that is aged. No one can escape from aging. Yeah, it's true. I look in the mirror, I'm, I'm an older man now. How did that happen? I mentioned to you earlier about my teacher, Landizero, like how long has 80 years gone by? He snaps his fingers. The truth of aging, which was a, a piercing in Siddhartha's, oh, we can't escape from aging, and then coming across a person that was ill, and then recognizing the inevitability of illness, and coming across a dead person, the inevitability of death. And then lastly, coming across what's known as the fourth heavenly messenger was a, a like a sadhu, a holy person, someone that was dedicating their life to understanding the meaning of life. And when Siddhartha found out that this is what this person does, there was a glimmer of some hope. Maybe this is something that I can do to understand what is this life. This is a powerful moment to recognize there may be some way of making sense of this. This is why I love this story. It's, it's also personal to me because as a young kid experiencing a lot of death, it's really up for me. What is this life? And being very lost and confused for many years and never really even being aware that you could begin to look inside to understand. Actually, it wasn't until I read the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu that began to wake me up in this epigram number 47, Latsu says, there's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. That was a revolutionary idea. I, I'd never heard of that before. And that really began my meditative journey, beginning to look inwards. So grateful. And my heavenly messenger was his college professor in the northeast kingdom of Vermont, and when I went into this class, he was teaching Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and Zen, the wisdom of the East. He was sitting on top of his desk in a full lotus position. I never had a teacher like this before. I felt like maybe I entered into what Harry Potter would call Hogwarts. This was a very different classroom than other classes I had been to. And I could see with the qualities of this teacher, his name was Bill Jackson, that he had a certain presence he, he, might have, he might know something, and I wanted to know what he knew. The fourth heavenly messenger is the one that awakens you. Maybe there is another way. Every one of us here, I have no doubt whatsoever that we, each of us has met these messengers. I don't think we could be in this retreat if we haven't met those messengers that kind of waking us up. 
it's kind of a kind of a strong word like pierced us the piercing of the reality of understanding about aging and illness and death and then this possibility maybe there's another way We all know that after Siddhartha left the palace, he traveled from teacher to teacher, and at that time, very prevalent was concentration meditation. He became a master of absorption, could calm his mind to profound degrees, experiencing tranquility and oneness. But realizing as he went from teacher to teacher that there's still something that was being longed for to understand what is this life. And then he'd heard about the practices of self-mortification and embarked upon these practices and lowering his food intake was one of his practices to one grain of rice a day and coming on to the brink of collapse realizing that if he kept doing this he would most certainly die. He then decided that um, he needed to stop and to begin to nourish his body. He was supported by this very beautiful person named Sujata who began to offer him food and begin to get his um, nourishment back, his strength back, his vitality back. And then at a certain point, seeing this tree and coming to the bottom of this tree and taking his seat. I get goosebumps even when I say that taking his seat and making a deep resolve, I'm going to stay here. I've been to so many other teachers and different teachings and, and all good, but I'm going to stay here now and see with my own experience. Real powerful inner resolve or commitment. And there's a particular part to this story that, that just touches me so much. I, I actually reflect on this part a lot. But what is said, and again, you know, who knows? <laughs> who knows what happened? But this is a wonderful story, and it really touches me. Of, of As he took his seat underneath the tree, um, he recalled the memory of when he was younger, a boy sitting underneath another tree on a very beautiful day, just like this day that he was sitting in. And it was one of those days, and you know, I live in Northern California, we have a lot of sunny days. And it was just one of these days was just perfect in temperature, the breeze was just right. And there's a sense of feeling this oneness with the world. I think many of us know about having at least a moment of that. It's a nice moment, this oneness in the world. So he's recalling this memory of this oneness in the world. And then he recalled another memory that he had forgotten. Another pasture in a field. To the distance he saw some farmers and oxen and a plow. And perhaps because his sensitivity was so heightened and feeling a sense of oneness and connection and interconnection with everything, when he saw the plow blade enter into the earth 
he could almost like sense or hear the, the cries of the worms. And this is the, like, something happened with his heart. You know, we don't, I don't know. But something happened, like, what was known at that point was the unification, the practices of absorption, of concentration. And no doubt he could bring his mind to such profound degrees of, of concentration, absorption, but something happened and he shifted his concentrated mind towards beginning to penetrate the rise and fall. We find that teaching in the Satipatthana, it's a reframe in each of the body, of the feeling tones, of the mind states, the reframe of the origination and the cessation, the coming, the going, the penetration mark of impermanence. I don't know, it's just something about this, from that oneness to all of a sudden doing something that he had never done before, shifting it to this changing nature, and it gave rise to powerful insights, realizations, the first into the noble truth of suffering. And it was a very sobering, very humbling, very penetrating recognition of the truth undeniable that there is suffering. One friend of mine uses the word, it, it was like the truth of the heartbreaking aspects of life. And that, that seems like, that's like a very powerful word for me. It's heartbreaking. And of course, there's many different aspects of dissatisfactoriness and I won't go into that list now. And of course, we know there's joys too, there's the joys and sorrows of life. But in that moment, there was this powerful, undeniable, sobering, humbling, honest acknowledgement of the truth of suffering, of dukkha. And then it speaks about that his mind and heart turned, and I think it makes total sense, of what are the causes of this. And arose within him was a powerful illumination of understanding, giving rise, this understanding of, of ignorance, of unawareness that gives rise, misconception that gives rise to the sense of craving, this like looking for hungering, looking for something to, to be fulfilled. But it was rooted first in this not knowing. Often we'll speak of, oh, the cause of suffering is craving, but underneath craving, the root, and that's the root actually independent origination, it all begins with ignorance, not seeing, unaware. Tungpulu Seru used to say, the midnight is dark, the new moon is dark, the thickness of the forest is dark, but darkest of all is ignorance. Darkest of all is ignorance. Again, ignorance, not knowing, not seeing clearly into things. And this gives rise to these various misconceptions of craving and looking outside of ourselves to find our fulfillment. So this knowing, this awareness is... The supreme knowing. 
Templucero used to say, if you know, you can break the cycle. If you don't know, you will go around and around. That this is dependent origination or paticca samapada. If you know, you can break the cycle. If you don't know, you go around and around. And I loved how the Cerro would always emphasize the importance of knowing. He would give this whole teaching in a reframe with, with all of our six senses. Our sight, our smell, our taste, our sound, our body, our feeling, and our mind. But he had this reframe if, if, with greed, hatred, and ignorance, which we know is the three root causes of all suffering. But he would say that if you don't know that greed is arising in the eyes or the ears or whatever, so any of these senses, but if you, if you don't know that greed is arising or hatred is arising or ignorance is arising, if you don't know it, you are building more and more ignorance. But if you know that greed is arising or hatred is arising or ignorance is arising, you're gaining knowledge. And to me, that is an incredibly beautiful teaching. We may not feel so good about when we recognize that this greed or grasping that's happening inside us, but if we're aware of it, this is going towards developing our wisdom. If we don't know, we go around and around and around. So may we be, hold ourselves with great compassion and kindness when we recognize you know, the kilesas, this greed, hatred, and ignorance arising inside us if we become aware that at least we know that it's here. If we didn't know, we continue to go round and around. And I appreciate uh, the Zen priest Norman Fisher who wrote a Zen-inspired translation of the Book of Psalms. And in traditional biblical, uh, often in English, some of the language that's used about certain people's actions, like this person was wicked, they were evil, they were unrighteous, they were bad. And what he did very beautifully was he erased all of those words. And he said they were heedless. They were unaware. That's beautiful. So this, this unawareness leads to this grasping and so forth. And it's important, you know, as human beings, I mean, we, we're wired to, to want to feel good and to shy away from areas that don't feel good. I think we'd all be elbowing each other to get in the line that feels good and, and getting away from the line that doesn't feel good. We're, we're human. But the question is, where are we looking for this? It's very interesting. Uh, the word utopia has a, a root in Greek. And one of the translations of utopia means nowhere. I find that very ironic, because the myth is we're trying to get to utopia, but it's nowhere to be found. But actually, if you play with the word in English, you can rearrange the letters a little bit, and it's pointing to something now, here. Maybe now, here, inside our own hearts. Where are we looking? Even the word desire has its Latin roots, deciduous, like from the stars. What the stars will bring. 
But if we continue to live with this notion that happiness can be found outside of us, we may spin around and around and around. And this misunderstanding tricks us with the belief that something outside of us can make us happy. And of course, there are a lot of things that do make us happy. They feel good, and this is perhaps the root of addiction. It's fair to say that in Buddhist psychology, craving is not considered morally wrong, but it's simply, it's a cause of suffering. And why is that? Because we can't, we keep on wanting what you can't have. It doesn't stay. A friend of mine who is a long-time Dharma practitioner and, and teaching Dharma now, in her younger life, she was a heroin addict. And I was curious one day when we were talking, and I asked her, what was your experience on heroin? Because, to be honest, I never tried heroin. And I was curious, what was her experience? And she said to me, Bob, it was the best experience I had in my life, and all I knew was I just wanted it all the time. And I kept on injecting myself, trying to recapture that moment, but it could never get like that first time. It's like that hungering that thirsting that can't be quenched. And so the Dharma says that there's no fire hotter than greed and no ice that's colder than hatred and no fog thicker than unawareness or ignorance. But again, due to our misconceptions, due to our unawareness, we may have harbored the belief that we can find these things outside of us. And again, this is the cause of going around and around with a lot of suffering. I'd like to read a, a beautiful translation to the Noble Truth of the Cause of Suffering, written by Achen Amaro. It's a translation. He says, This is the noble truth of the cause of suffering, and it is craving. A craving that is compelling and intoxicating, and causes us to be born into things again and again. Ever seeking delight, now here and now there. And namely, it's the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be something or someone, the craving to feel nothing. I think as human beings, many of us, if we're honest, uh, we, we may know about the, a craving that is compelling and intoxicating. Will you admit it? <laughs> I'll admit it. Yeah, it's, it's compelling and it's intoxicating and giving birth into things again and again. So I'd like to maybe just unpack this because I think it's so astounding these, this understanding that arose underneath this Bodhi tree that is so pertinent even today. The awakening of the causes of suffering. Yes, there is suffering and there is a cause of this unawareness that's not seen clearly. 
that gives rise with misconception to craving, trying to find a sense of happiness. So the first one is craving for sensual delight. It's like eros, it's libidinal, it's instinct, it's, it's operative, it's to feel good. And, you know, there's so many things that we can lose ourselves into to feel good, but food, sex, shopping. Of course, some of the neuroscientists these days, one in particular, Judd Brewer, amongst, of course, others, he's at Brown University, did a lot of research on, like, what happens, like, when you get an email and you, cl you click it, or what happens when you do this one click at Amazon and you buy something and it sends off all these opioids within our brain and physiology. It feels really good. But often it's not enough to do it again. To do it again. It's addictive. But it feels good in the moment. And it feels good because perhaps for a moment we lose ourselves and in that losing of ourselves, we may not have to feel much pain. Or we're lost in, in, the, in the satiation of the sensual with the pleasures. Remember one time eating my favorite vegan ice cream and became mindful of the eating and enjoying. And yeah, there's there's just um, a lot of pleasure eating that ice cream. I'll just say that. And at a certain moment, I saw there was only one more spoonful left to get. And as that happened, I was, I was maintaining some awareness. And it was like a new weather front moved in of, oh, no, there's one bite left. What am I going to do? And then I thought, Oh, there's more in the freezer. I'll go get another bowl. But I didn't do that. But you could see, I could just see that sense of um, the satiation, the pleasure. And what is that pleasure? As I began to study it more with my awareness of like losing myself into that pleasure. So I don't have to feel pain. But it goes on and on. Hmm. I'm just hearing an ambulance stopping near my house, right near my house. I have two old neighbors, both in their 90s. I hope they're okay. This craving for sensual delight never fully satisfies things. Kabir, he writes that, friend, please tell me what I can do about this world that I hold on to and it keeps on spitting out. I gave up my sewn clothes and I wore a robe, but then one day I noticed that the cloth was well woven. And so I bought some burlap, but I still throw it elegantly over my left shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings and now I discover I'm angry a lot. I gave up rage, and now I notice that I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I am proud of myself. So this poem goes on forever. 
it never ends because it's never enough. So this craving for central light gets us caught. Yes, they feel things feel good. But if we are counting on this to make us completely happy, it may not be so. And I, I remember once working with a gentleman that was a an engineer, and he said, you know, I was brought up to believe becoming, uh, to be an engineer was a good thing, and getting a house, and getting a stereo, getting a boat, getting all these things. But then he, he said, I, I don't know what happiness is. In. I mean, these are things. What, what is really can make me happy? So perhaps it's in our wise relationship with things. Because all of us, I mean, I got my things. I trust you have your things. But the Dharma teaches us how do we have a healthier or wiser relationship with our things. And I forget, I think one of the teachers, I'm sorry to say, I'm forgetting which one was speaking about, Achan Cha. Um, well, I, oh, I heard this story this way, that he once gave a Dharma talk on how much that he loved his, uh, his teacup. And he'd go on and on talking about how wonderful it is. Finally, at the end, some of the monastics had the courage to ask him, what are you, what are you talking so much about how much you love your teacup? And he'd laugh. And he'd say, I'm enjoying it now because I already know it's broken. And so I, I felt that was a very wise way of like, like how, how do we, what's our relationship to our sensual desires? The second cause of suffering is this craving for to become or to be someone rooted in narcissism, egocentricity, to keep things going. I appreciated James sharing, um, actually, part of this craving to be someone has both an inflation and deflation side. Like, I'm the best walking meditator in the place. And like, oh, I'm the worst walking meditator in the place. Like, how could I believe that I could? So the, the sense of this inflation, deflation, deflation, the sense of selfing. And perhaps, of course, it's born out of a sense of insecurity. Looking for approval to be seen. It's almost like from this country western song, I'm looking for love in all the wrong places. I've left myself once again seeking approval and recognition. Some years ago, it's almost embarrassing to say it, but I will. Um, I, I don't know, I, I, I use Facebook from time to time, not that much these days, but um, I might have put in a poem or something on there. And at one point I came back to it and, and I saw that there was, um, for those of you who know about Facebook, like people can check off like and whatever. And so, and, and it counts it up. And so at one point I saw 199. And I saw my mind go, wouldn't it be nice to get 200? <laughs> like, would 200 really do it? I got 200, but that wasn't enough. I wanted 201. It's, it's never enough. If there's the belief that's rooted that somehow I need approval from the outside because deep inside I'm insecure. It's a very powerful teaching. 
this points to the importance of helping us to discover our own sovereignty inside ourselves, which I really feel like when the Buddha awakened, Mara came to him, well, who are you? Who's going to be your witness? Who? And, 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 and the Buddha pointed like, the earth will be my witness. But the Buddha didn't even need the earth as the witness, because the Buddha knew for oneself. And this is a possibility within each and every one of us, the possibility to awaken. I used to have a Zen teacher, and he was in the Nagarjuna school, and studied and practiced with the Majamika Karika. And his name was Bishop Siaku. And I... I, he's he's touched my heart so much, and he's the only one that could perhaps say to me, Bob, you are the most stupidest person I ever met in my entire life. And he would say that with kind of a smile on his face. And that does sound very insulting, but if you knew Bishop Siaku, it was a little bit different. And I'd ask him why. And he would say, with all sincerity, I felt like he meant it down to the core of his being, saying, you are already enlightened, you just don't know it. That seed of awakening is within each and every one of us. That, that belief really inspired me. It's inside, not outside. But these places, the cravings to be someone, like how many times have we left ourselves? And of course, this is, this is intertwined with our identifications, our conditioning. And if we've been brought up in such ways to believe that we're inferior, that we're... I remember one person I worked with, her mother used to say to her all the time, I wish I never had you. That's a horrific thing to say to someone very young and to believe that. And as we worked with her, I asked her about her professional career. She was a nurse midwife. She'd ha actually helped assist birthing hundreds of children into the world. In time, she began to realize maybe there is some worth here for herself. But these are such deep wounds. And born out of the sense of insecurity, yes, then perhaps we need to look outside of ourselves to to be seen, to be validated, to be approved, to be acknowledged, because I don't know this for myself. This type of craving. The last one is this craving to feel nothing. It's almost like the death instinct or thanatos, annihilation. I didn't quite relate to it at one point in my life and nor understood it until I had an experience that made me realize oh this is what the Buddha was talking about and it was a, a period of time uh, where there was a possibility my son had cancer um, he ended up not having it and but there was a time when we didn't know I just wanted to sleep all the time and I, so I'd just go sleep, and then when I'd wake up, the pain was just so pain. I just want to go back to sleep. And I thought, oh, this is, 
this craving. I began to understand this more what the Buddha was talking about, this craving to feel nothing, to numb. Then I began to realize so many different places in my life where I could just turn away, numb out, get lost in whatever it is that puzzles the internet. I mean, there are so many ways we can lose ourselves. The Buddha is pointing that there's a possibility for us to begin to wake up, to begin to take our seat. And I'm just so touched with all of us, with our practice, this journey of growing to awaken, to see more clearly through the stories and the identifications And to me, this is one of the most important parts of these teachings, is seeing through these stories of identification. This gives birth to all of the prejudice and bias that we have in this world. I mentioned earlier that I'm very, I live in a, a multi-generational family right now, and I have a seven-month-old grandson named Silas. And he, he's become one of my big teachers these days. And it's really incredible hanging out with him because Silas has not yet learned. He has, he has no prejudice yet. He has no shame. If I actually, I th thought about breaking him here, he could have a bowel movement in front of you or throw up or pee and he could care less what you think. He's like, he's like sovereign. We all came in this way. That's, that's something. We came in this way. And we learned through our experience in life and got shamed, humiliated, made to feel small. It's beautiful to see, like Silas teaches me, like this is, we came from this place. And particularly in these days of, of you know, like, we, we didn't learn hate. I mean, we, he, he, we didn't come in with hate. We learned it. And I think the gift of the Dharma practices is as we grow more aware, we can begin to see what it is that we have learned. And now that we understand and see more clearly what we've learned, we can begin to unlearn it. This is where the deep work these days are really looking at our blindness, my blindness, my white privilege, my my conditioning that makes me feel separate from another. The liberating teachings of the Dharma can begin to help us to see through these stories. And the Buddha was a great rebel in his time, breaking the caste system, that you are of noble inheritance through the purification of your mind and heart, not what caste you're in. Yes, and there was these castes of Brahmins and merchants and, and so forth. And then there was a, a class of people that they didn't even get a class name. How horrific, untouchables. They didn't even get to be in a caste. But the Buddha saw through these castes. Our noble ability is with the purification of our mind and heart. And these teachings, particularly around the sense of identity, is the utmost importance in our practice to see through the conditioning, the stories, the narratives, the conditionings. And to me, this is what the this was the Buddha's awakening seeing through the conditionings. There's a beautiful line on the Buddha's awakening 
that says, Through many a birth I wandered in samsara. This is called the lion's roar. Through many a birth I wandered in samsara. Samsara, the birth, old age, disease, and death again and again and again. So through many a birth I wandered in samsara, seeking but not finding the builder of the house. Sorrowful it is to be born again and again, but, O household builder, thou art now seen. Thou shalt build no house again. All the rafters are broken. The ridgepole is shattered. My mind has attained the unconditioned. Achieved is the end of ignorance and craving. My mind has attained the unconditioned. And my sense is you can only know the unconditioned through seeing through the conditioning. And the conditioning is our identifications, our stories, our narratives, these patterns. And so this practice is so, such potential for us to experience greater seeing from the being held hostage by our conditioning and our stories and our prejudice, our hatred, our fear. To me, what's most alive in me now with these teachings is to really look at the conditioning, the stories and the narratives. And, you know, I'm 67. I got a lot. I've built a lot of grooves, deep, deep grooves. It's wonderful to see such a fresh being like Silas, seven months old. It's, he no doubt will get his grooves and his conditioning, but it's powerful remembering, reminded, we didn't come in this way. This was all learned. And again, what can be learned can be unlearned. This is the potentiality of the Dharma of liberation from greed and hatred and ignorance and actually experiencing its opposite that we don't as much talk about so much. What's the opposite of greed? is contentment. Money cannot buy contentment. It is the greatest of wealth. The opposite of hatred, of course, is love, the open heart. The opposite of ignorance is clarity, seeing clearly into the nature of things, of suffering, its causes, seeing through the conditioning. Yeah. So I think I'll maybe just pause here for a moment and um, maybe we'll just sit for a few minutes. And I'd like to just share with you a, a very short meditation from Tunku Lucero. And so just sitting in a position that you can be comfortable and awake. And so accompanying with the breath as you breathe in and breathe out experiencing with the breath as you breathe in, experiencing with the breath that you breathe out, that in this moment there is no more greed within you in this moment. It's just giving a little experience. Well, what would it be like with the breath in and out, the absence of greed and the growing of contentment with just the way it is?
This is called in Burmese Raga Kine. The breathing in and breathing out with no greed and contentment. And then with the next few breaths in and breaths out, the experience of no hatred, no aversion in its place, the heart becomes soft, kind. The open heart, breathing in and breathing out, the falling away of hatred and in its place, the open heart of great benevolence, and resting in it with the breath. It's called Dodakine. And then this next practice, called Mohakine, is as we breathe in and breathe out, the falling away of ignorance in, in its place, clarity, understanding, wisdom into the places where we know where we get caught with our grasping, with our aversion of suffering and its causes. Breathing in and breathing out, clarity understanding. This is the taste of freedom, the falling away of greed and hatred and ignorance, the abidings of contentment, loving kindness, and understanding. And so thank you for your presence and listening to so offered and may we remember again I love this criterion of knowing what's beneficial the lessening of greed the lessening of hatred the lessening of ignorance any path that is guiding towards this lessening is a path towards the lessening of suffering and peace may each of us find the gateways into our hearts to grow with greater clarity and understanding and wisdom in peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.